I, I've never done this before. I've never actually spoken about the Christmas story, which is quite surprising given that I grew up as an Anglican. And uh, I went to uh, minister in Fulham last week, both the morning and the evening. And they're already in like full Christmas swing because they, they've got Advent, they're lighting candles and they've got little oranges. And it, it, like, we miss so much when we just get sort of absorbed by all the activities of Christmas that we actually miss the truths and the, 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 the great lessons that we can learn from the Christmas story. So over the next three weeks, I'm actually going to look at, at three um, events in that Christmas story, which you'll, you'll all be familiar with. And, and basically, I'm looking at the three visits of the angels. And we're starting this morning. It was interesting that, that Joseph brought that word, which uh, the forerunner fulfillment of that word was John the Baptist, the one who came to prepare the way. And actually, this morning... That one of the things, the main thing I'm looking at is the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist who comes to prepare the way. So we're, we're going to look at that. So you need to look at uh, Luke chapter 1, and uh, beginning at verse 5. So basically I'm starting right at the beginning of the story. So I'll, I'll just read it as we go through. But beginning at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. That means that she's also a Levite. She's also part of the priesthood. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Okay, let, let me just pick that up so, so we don't get confused. The Bible uh, quite regularly refers to people as righteous. Uh, it doesn't mean that they were sinless. It says they walked blameless in the sight of the Lord. Blameless isn't the same as sinless. In fact, the Bible tells us that um, there isn't anybody who hasn't sinned apart from Jesus. But what it does mean is that these were, they, these, these these were uh, very observant people who observed all the um, rules and regulations that they had around the priesthood, around the way the Israelites lived. So they, they, these are two people doing their best for God. That, that's the basic idea. And um, they're walking under the old covenant with God. And when they, when they fail, there was provision over the, under the old covenant to get their sin dealt with to, to obtain forgiveness and they used to go through all the sacrifice and things so when it says they were righteous and blameless it basically means these two people doing their best and when they bomb out they do their best to put it right with God okay so that's what that's saying because uh, I know people get confused about that they think that you have to be somebody amazing in order to do something for God and that's not true anybody can God is after faithfulness and willingness rather than meeting rules and requirements. So, let's carry on. Verse 79, uh, 7. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both very advanced in years. Now, it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in his appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
Now, I'll explain that first. Because basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through what the, these events and just draw some lessons out of it that we can learn. Because in here, what we're going to learn is the way God works in our lives. You know, these aren't just stories. These are real events of the way God operates in lives. And so when it says that he was... Uh, it was his turn for his order and he drew lots and he went into the temple. Basically, the way that they worked things amongst the, the Levitical order, which was the priesthood, they were divided into 24 groups and each group had two weeks where it was responsible for the most internal workings of the temple and the sacrifices and, and, got, and, and the, uh, the altars and all that sort of stuff. And so... What this is saying is that it's Zacharias's group and he draws the lot, so he's on that day. Does that make sense? That's all that's saying. Um, now, what I want you to see is this, because it, it started to strike me, like, why, why did the angels come and visit when they came and visited? And, and, and where? You know, sometimes we, we read these stories, we skim over them, because we're used to reading them at Christmas. And it just, God just said this to me. He said, this is what I want you to see. This is what I want faith life to see. That he, Zacharias had the most important encounter with God of his entire life when he was going about his day-to-day -day business. He, God, you see doesn't view us as any different when we're sat here than when we're out at work or at home. What God is looking for is people who are faithful wherever they are, who, who are, who are whose lives are committed to him, whose lives are laid down to him, that, that don't just like have this view of church is somewhere I go on a Sunday and, and I'm a Christian and the rest of the week it makes no difference. And you see... God, we have God encounters as we go about our business. That, that's the way the norm is supposed to work in our life. So, sometimes we come seeking a God encounter. And that, that's okay. That's, that's great. But what, what we also should do is expect to encounter God wherever we are and whatever we're doing. Because he's there all the time. He's with us. He said, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. So he's with us. He's with us when we sat at our desk. He's with us when we're working. He's with us when we're studying. He's with us when we're having a shower. He's with us wherever we are. And that's a pattern you see in the Bible. And I, I found this really interesting. I'm going, well, okay, you're telling me that about them. But then God said, well, that's how I work. I invade people's lives as they go about their lives because that's that's where I am. you see he invaded Moses life when he was keeping sheep on the backside of the desert he invaded Gideon's life when he was just threshing wheat he, he invaded David's life when he was keeping sheep and they, and they went to look for him because they'd been through all the other brothers and and God works at the point where we are yeah. and and what he's looking for is people who are willing to respond to him and if we're willing to respond to him wherever we are, then he does it as we're going about our daily things. We, it's not some sort of special religious thing we have to work ourselves up into for God to operate in our life. What he's looking for is people who are willing to respond when he comes. 
And I also think it's really interesting that God is looking for industrious people. He's not looking for, for people who, who are, are lazy or, or don't want to work. He's looking for people who are industrious, who, who actually are um, looking after themselves, looking after the families and producing good things. You remember we, I talked a few weeks ago about we do everything for the glory, to the glory of God. In whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Because work is a primary form of worship. As we offer up what we do to God, it's a primary form of worship. And so that's all Zacharias is doing. He's offering up what he does, his work as, a wor uh, as worship to God. And God responds to what he sees in his heart and what he sees in Elizabeth's heart. Let's go on, verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, your prayers, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, he'll drink no wine or liquor, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. And he'll turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now that's a long reading, but basically that's more or less the reading. And that, that's a story we're familiar with because what happens next is that um, Zacharias, well, he, he makes some comments. I'm, I, I might get to those. But um, the angel says certain things. And what the angel is doing is it's repeating some prophecies that God's already made, both from Malachi. And Malachi chapter 3, uh, verse 1, says this. Behold, I send my messenger and he will... Prepare the way before me. Malachi 4 says this, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. So what the angel is doing is he, he's coming, he, he, he appears before Zacharias who like, doesn't know what to do with himself. He's so afraid and troubled. and Well, you would, like, you would be, wouldn't you? if an angel appeared before you. I don't know, I don't know, I've never seen an angel. But I guess you can kind of recognise he's an angel. And we find out later that this is a really powerful angel called Gabriel, one of the archangels. And he, he, he comes before Zacharias, and Zacharias um, basically is thrown into fear. But what he's saying, what he's doing, in, in, and he repeats these prophecies that have been made, and you've got to realize that at this time, Israel has been waiting 400 plus years for this messenger to come and for then the Messiah to come. There's been silence. No prophets, no voice of God, silence. And suddenly this angel standing in front of Zechariah says, 
that guy who was going to come in the spirit of Elijah, who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, he's going to be your son. He's going to be your son. You've been waiting 400 plus years, and it's you. It's you and Elizabeth, and he's your son. Because now is the time when the prophecies are going to get fulfilled. I don't know how I would have responded if I'd been Zacharias. <laughs> I guess I would have been afraid. I'd have been shocked. But what's interesting is that Gabriel starts with this, this phrase, your prayers have been heard. What was Zacharias praying for? He was praying for a son. Now, that, I find that really interesting. Not that he was praying for a son. This is what I find interesting, that he's praying for a son when he knows his wife can't have one, and quite apart from that, they're way too old to have one. And he's still praying for one. So what we know from this, what we can find out from this, is that there was faith present, but at the same time, when it looks like the answer's going to come, there's also unbelief. You see... Sometimes we can think that we need to like have perfect faith before God can do anything in our life. And I find this really encouraging because actually what this is telling me is that we can, go, you know, we go up and down in our faith, don't we? <laughs> like we, we, we're there, we're thinking, right, I'm paying for this, I'm paying for this, and nothing happens. Then we go down and then we think, right, I'm going to have another go, I'm going to pay for this, and then something comes along that's, seems to indicate totally the opposite is going to happen and we go and then we then we go we, we stir ourselves again you know and we go pay for it and that's okay you know god doesn't respond to the quantity of faith he responds to faith and whilst it's not okay to be in unbelief this tells me that God actually understands what we go through. And that he answers us anyway. Because, and, and what that tells me is that through all those ups and downs, what God's looking for is the person that keeps going and keeps persevering and keeps praying, even when it looks impossible. Because we have to get that God's the God of the impossible. And even when it looks like it can never happen, we keep praying. This was an impossible situation, and Zachariah is still praying, and Elizabeth is still praying. And God answers their prayers at a time when it was impossible. He didn't answer them at a time when it was possible. So we keep praying for, for that thing, that desire that God has placed in our heart. You see, we find out later that John, he comes to prepare the way for Jesus. And in Galatians, we find out this statement. We find, it says, when the fullness of time had come, the Messiah came, Jesus came. That means there's a timing issue going on here. There's a timing issue. And, 
you've got this amazing, this couple, old couple, barren woman, praying for childbirth, standing on the promises of the Old Testament that they're entitled to a child, that God wants them to be fruitful. But the timing of the answer for God is keyed to some other things. You see, God is, is going to answer their prayers. He's heard their prayers. He's answering their prayers. But the timing of that answer is keyed to Jesus coming. Because God has in line that the way he's going to answer this prayer is that they're going to have John the Baptist. Now, I think that's challenging because we live in a fast food, fast TV, internet, text, immediate response generation. And as a result of that, we're getting conditioned not to persevere in prayer and not to push through difficulties and give up really easily. Now, I'm not talking here about healing or, or, or things that you see Jesus do more or less straight away. I'm not saying, you know, there's a time for this, there's a time for that in, in those sort of areas. But what I am saying is that in many areas, there is often a timing thing. And it's not that we are unfaithful, it's not that God's unfaithful. It's actually, what we see here is he has a much better plan than we can ask or imagine. You see, the answer they get was way beyond what they were looking for. They were looking for a child out of an impossible situation. They got John the Baptist after 400 odd years of silence from God and he was their son. So God can do way more than we can ask or imagine. They weren't thinking, I, I, I want a special son. God, send me the messenger. Send me John the Baptist. They were thinking, any child will do. And God goes, hang on a minute. I've got something special for you guys. Jesus said later on that there was none greater than John the Baptist of all the prophets. That means that the anointing on John the Baptist's life was greater than any of the prophets we see in the Old Testament. The power and anointing on his life was greater. Now we're going to find out something in a minute about what he did with that power. Because sometimes we forget that. We forget that actually Jesus said there's more power, more anointing on that guy than any of the previous prophets that have gone before. This is what I want you to see. We aren't to get thrown in our prayers by timing issues. Because God has something better than we can imagine in terms of what we're asking for. How do I know that? How do I know we shouldn't get thrown by timing issues? Well, let's go to way to the end of, of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 5. And, and John, who is, I kind of guess, the disciple who knew Jesus' heart more than any others, he makes some comments about prayer. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, he, he says this, This is the confidence we have in him. That if we ask 
anything according to his will. Well, how do you know what his will is? Well, it's in here. His will is to heal. His will is to set free. His will is for you to have children. His will is for you to be fruitful. His will is for us to multiply. His will is for us to prosper. It's all in there. So we know we're asking according to his will. If you ask anything according to his will, you can guarantee something. God heard it. And then he says, this is what we're confident of. If we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have it from him. So when you pray, even when you haven't seen the answer yet, he's working on it. Whatever it is you're asking for right now, he's working on it. Whatever it is you're thinking about, whatever it is you're praying for, he's working on it. Whoever you're praying for, he's working on it. Whatever situation you're in right at the moment, he's heard your prayers and he's working on it. And what he's asking us to do is to hold on, keep in faith till you see the answer because it's going to be more than you can ask or imagine. Because if he's working on it, it's much better than you think it would be by an instant McDonald's fix. Amen. So don't get discouraged because he's working on it. Don't stop praying because he's working on it. Don't get thrown because it looks like the opposite is going to happen because he's working on it. And what you're going to have in the end is way better than you thought you were praying for because he's a God of abundance, not the God of stinginess. Now let's go on to verse 17 because we're amused over here. Verse 17, it is, so this is John the Baptist. He will go as a spirit, as a forerunner before him in the spirit, the power, spirit and power of Elijah, turn the hearts of the fathers to children and disobedient attitude to the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, this is the important bit. So it was really interesting that Joseph brought the prophecy of this from the Old Testament. John the Baptist had a purpose for his life. That purpose was to prepare the way for somebody else. You see, there's laws established by God that operate in creation and in the world that even, that even God follows. Because he established them, so he follows them. And it says that John the Baptist prepared here the way of the Lord. Now, that word prepare, it means to formulate, to organize, to gather together, to make ready. So what's John the Baptist, what, what does it describe John the Baptist's role as? Remember, what Gabriel's saying is, you're going to have this son. He's the answer to 400 and odd years of silence. He's the messenger and... What I want you to do is raise him up as one who is going to prepare people for somebody else. He's going to prepare the hearts. He's going to gather people together and make them ready. Make them ready so that when Christ comes, Christ can do what he came to do. Now, you've got to see this, and I hadn't seen this before. John the Baptist was absolutely vital 
Because without John the Baptist preparing hearts for Christ, Christ couldn't have done what Christ did. Even Christ himself needed somebody to prepare hearts. To make the way ready. To get things right. To, to um, sow seeds into other people. By what he said, by what they saw him do. You see, if you're going to plant a seed, you don't just like throw it anywhere, do you? Like, oh, I've got a packet of seeds here. We, we, we go, um, we're in sort of like a holiday system. And um, when you check out in this holiday system, uh, they give you a little packet of seeds of forget-me-nots so you'll come back again. That's the idea. So you won't forget what a nice holiday you've had. I know it's... But we're British, we come up with stupid things like this. But you don't just take a packet of seeds and go, there you go, grow. You actually prepare the ground that you're going to put them in. You, you might dig it, you might put little furrows, you might rake over the top, but you prepare the ground. You break up the ground to make it ready to receive the seed that's going to produce the harvest or produce the growth. And there's a principle here that if you prepare the ground, you get a greater harvest. Would you agree? If you prepare the ground, you get a bigger harvest. This is where you need to pay attention because I'm going somewhere with this. Okay, I'm not, just I'm not just waffling. I'm not just waffling. If you break up the ground, if you prepare the ground, you get a bigger harvest. John the Baptist was vital to what Christ did because there always has to be a preparation phase in people's hearts in order for the harvest to come. John the Baptist took the greatest anointing apart from Jesus, the greatest anointing, the greatest prophetic anointing, the greatest power that had been committed to mankind and used it to prepare the way for somebody else. There's a man not full of his own self. There's a man who isn't so absorbed by his own gifting that he wants it all to be about him. He's a man so knowing of where that gifting came from that he wants it all to be about somebody else and for somebody else to get the glory. And, and that's, that's the heart that God's looking for. That's the heart he can entrust miracles to. That's the heart he can entrust souls to. It's the heart he can entrust disciples to. Somebody who wants it all to be about somebody else, not about them, however gifted they are. And in our, in our fast food showbiz generation, we've made superstars of people. And we're here to make superstars of Jesus. Because he already is. And I just find it fascinating that the, the, the person who could have done more miracles, amazing things that anybody else that Jesus says was the greatest of all actually used all those gifts to prepare the way for somebody else because his heart was right. Now, this is where I'm going with this. If you prepare the ground, you get a greater harvest. So when we are doing, uh, reaching out to people, evangelism, a lot of what we do when we start doing that is preparing the ground. 
I think if you went out, I mean, I, I went out nearly every day with Nathan, but if you went out the last two Saturdays and whatever, a lot of that is preparing the ground because as you go back and you see the same people over and over again, you're getting better and better conversations. And we, we, we are taking the heart of God of love and showing it to people. You see, we have a whole city out there we need to prepare. We have a whole community around this church and we need to prepare their hearts. And it's not overnight. It takes work, it takes effort to prepare that ground, to break up the hard soil, to dig out the weeds, to get rid of the stones and to get it ready for what Christ wants to do with those hearts. And it'll take our best prayers and our best endurance and it'll take time for us to do that. And thankfully, we're not alone because other churches are doing it as well. And there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a breaking up of the ground that is making stuff ready for God to move in this city. And we need to be consistent in that and not go back into our shells because we think that, that nothing's happening. You see, John the Baptist did get big crowds, but the Messiah still hadn't come. And, you know, he, he wasn't... Um, he wasn't trying to build a ministry for him. You know, like with John the Baptist, basically his ministry was draw the crowd, get them to repent, stick them in the water, I'm done. <coughs> That's it. I mean, because he's preparing people for somebody else. Now you see that, don't you, um, in the New Testament where it says there's some who sow, some who water, some who gather. We all have different roles to play, but it's important that we play our role. Yeah. And it's important we keep going with the things I talked about this summer. Praying peace on people, uh, building relationships with people, praying for their, their needs, their felt needs, going, you know, if they're in pain, praying for them to be healed. Um, whatever we see their needs are, doing that, breaking up that ground so they receive the gospel. And it's important we keep doing that until we see the harvest. Because God's working in a greater harvest than we can ask or imagine. He's working on it. And our prayers that we put out for nine or ten years for souls and, and the, the bringing down of the spirit of intellectualism over this city and bringing down all those idols and changing Cambridge and the move of God in Cambridge, he's working on it. And it's more than we can ask or imagine. Because we're preparing the way for Christ. You see, we, we prepare the way in lots of ways. You know, we prepare the way for people to receive healing by giving testimonies of healing. It, it softens, breaks up people's hearts so they can receive the miracles for themselves. You know... Um, Last week, I was uh, in Fulham ministering at uh, our friend Stuart and Kerry's church. And in the morning, uh, I was talking, basically talking about a similar thing that I'd done here a few weeks earlier about being kingdom people. And I was sharing some testimonies. I was sharing the testimonies that we'd had over the years of uh, back pains healed. And I was also sharing the testimony about John Bennion's neck and uh, back that had got healed, even though he was on like strong painkillers three times a week, uh, three times a day, uh, and 
basically couldn't move his neck and, and so on, so I, and, and how he got healed. And I was saying that that was on the back of testimonies about backs. So I gave a, a few words of knowledge, and then people came forward for, for prayer. And quite a number responded to things that I'd said in the word of knowledge. Now, I, firstly, I was really surprised because one of the things I thought I'd given a really specific word, uh, and basically the, the word was you've got pain from the base of your skull, it goes around here, under your ear, and stops at your neck there. And I thought, well, that's really specific. And so I didn't, you know, so I gave that word, and like seven or eight people came forward and go, I'm the neck. And you go, really? Yeah, I've got pain from here, around here, under here, and it stops there. And I'm going like, okay, well, that's weird. That's really strange. And there's this, this guy, he's quite a tall guy, but he, he was the first one, uh, no, I think he was actually the second that, that said that he was the neck. Yeah, well, it was seven which, that came forward for a, a really specific, you know, if I said, well, you've got neck pain, I would understand, but not like location and, and, and where it was and where it stopped. And he came and he said, look, I've had uh, real problems with my, I had cancer in my neck. Uh, I've had uh, all this area extracted. You can see the scars. And he said, I can't move my neck. So to turn, I have to do this. And you just told the story of this guy who couldn't move his neck. And so I want you to pray for the same thing for me because it, medically that's impossible. So we prayed and he went like that. And he's like, oh my goodness. And then all the other necks got healed. <laughs> now I'm thinking like, okay, are you allowed to do this in, in an Anglican church in posh Fulham? <laughs> and then this, this other guy came forward and he, he, he said, oh, you know, I, I'm responding to testimony about that, so pray for him. And anyway, he went away. And then he comes back at the end and he goes, well, he goes, that was really interesting. <laughs> and I said, right, okay, what, what was really interesting? He said, well, when you paid for me, you know, I said that I felt a lot of heat and, and things. And, and so I'd done what I normally do. I've been in Northern, I said, heat's good. <laughs> and, you know, it's good. That's a sign God's doing something. So he'd, he'd wandered off and then he came back. And he, and he used these words, that, that was interesting. And I'm thinking, well, that's not kind of the words I use for a miracle, really. <laughs> I'm going, like, what's going on here? I said, well, what do you mean it's interesting? He said, it's absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating, because I have no pain. <laughs> I've, I've got no pain, and that's, that's really interesting. I, I just, um, I can't understand that. <laughs> and I said, well, what, yeah, what can't you understand? And he goes, well, I, I, that, that back condition I've got, it's an inoperable problem. And I said, well, is that what the doctor said? He said, well, it is what the doctor said, but I know that because I'm a top back surgeon in, <laughs> in, a, church, in, in a hospital in London. I'm one of the specialists. I, that is an inoperable thing. And I have got no explanation for the fact that, I, that all the pain's gone and I can move my back. So I said, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and it just blew me away that God heals back surgeons. And it's like, because it blew all my preconceptions because often the more knowledge you have, the, the harder it seems to get healed. And he, he found it no problem at all, but he did find it really interesting. <laughs> so we need to prepare the ground with testimony, with prayer, with 
with what we say, with the way we show the love of God to others in order to bring things out of the theoretical into the reality. And we have to get away from this idea that we have to have an immediate crop. This, this, this back healing thing, it's been growing for nine or ten years. Well, it's been growing since I was at university the first time I saw it. And, and now I'm, I'm just blown away by the scale of what God is doing as the testimony goes out, as the ground is prepared and people seem able to receive. You see, sometimes in our fast food world, what we do is, well, I'll move you on from fast food now. I'll move you on to second-hand car salesmen, double glazing salesmen. <laughs> oh, these people are really annoying me at the moment. They ring me up for PPI insurance. Anybody getting those? Yeah, it's just like time must be running out. I don't know. Cheryl got a phone call yesterday. Have you had an accident in the last two years? How many times have we had a phone call asking if we've got an accident in the last two years? And then we had one. Somebody drove in the back of our car <laughs> about 10 minutes later. Um, but, you know, we, we kind of got our mindset around a bit of a pressure cell type of Christianity. I've got to get them to the point where they say a prayer and then I can count the score. If somebody tries to sell you something like that, what's your reaction? Yeah, how did you get my number so I can cut you off? Yeah. <laughs> but we have to be interested and love the person and sow into their life. Because sometimes we'll get to reap the harvest that we didn't sow into, and other times people get to reap the harvest we sowed into. Yeah. And that, that's the norm. And, and so if we're working on scorecards and, and, our, and God's got us sowing, and somebody over there is reaping, we're going to get jealous. And that's, uh, that's bad for our hearts. And if, if we're the one reaping when everybody else is sowed, sometimes we can get proud. And we have to recognize that God's doing both. And it's not necessarily our role to do everything, but we've got to do our bit when that bit presents itself in front of us. Now, last point. Zachariah says, how am I going to know all this? How, am I, how do I know this for certain? For I'm an old man, my wife's advanced in years, and the angel answered and said, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. Now, this is, this is quite interesting because Zacharias asks a question. And he gets, basically, he gets stuck dumb until John's born. That's a pretty big thing for asking a question, isn't it? Now, what's interesting is next week, we're going to look at when Gabriel talks to Mary, and Mary asks a question. And she gets told, well done. So, what's going on? What's going on with all that? You know, like, you see, Zacharias and Elizabeth have been praying for something that's impossible, the whole nation of Israel, the whole priesthood has been waiting 400 and something years of silence for this prophet to come. The angels just said, you're the one, you're the dad. And he goes, I can't see how that's going to be. I, 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 I don't believe you. 
His response to the announcement was unbelief. Now, Mary's response to the announcement was also to ask a question. Now, this is, this is, this is really key to how we grow in faith. And next week, what I'm going to talk about is how we conceive a miracle in our lives. But it works like this. It is impossible for them to have children. So this is actually a logical question. But God has told us something, which is when he's in operation, we don't lean on our own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 3 verse 5. At this point, Zacharias is in unbelief. But not only that, he starts questioning God. He's going like, no, no way. Can't be like that. Can't happen. I can't have kids. Wife can't have kids. We're too old. Can't happen. Now, I don't know how he got to that mindset, but he did. Now, this is, there's a few things to see here to, to just wrap this up. Everything we see in the natural world might appear logical, but it's subject to a superiority that invades the logical and changes it. And that's what Zacharias failed to see. He didn't see that, that, that what is logical is not the end of the story. A doctor's report is not the end of the story. A supervisor's report is not the end of the story. Your boss's attitude is not the end of the story. Your broken relationship is not the end of the story. It's subject to a superior reality that can bring change. And, and, and it's subject to your prayers, the God who hears your prayers, who's working on it, changing it. And Zacharias misses all that. You see, it's not wrong to ask questions when, when God says, I'm going to do this, or what you've been praying for, I'm going to do this. Your questions are, the questions are fine. It's the heart that they come from. So if you're asking questions, God, you said you're going to do this, and I receive it, and I'm, thank you, God, that you're doing this. Now, how do you want me to take part in that? Is there anything that I should do in response to that? Is, is there anything I, anywhere I need to be? Is there anything, any action I need to take? And we go back and ask God what he wants us to do in the light of the revelation he's given us. We don't reject the revelation. We ask for clarification of the revelation, and that's okay. And God loves that, and Mary gets Jesus without having to be struck dumb. You see, the fact is that, yeah, how can I wrap this? Let me put it this way. There's a, a guy that we witnessed to uh, for a long time. And he was around before Faith Life started, and he was here when we started Faith Life. And everything we would talk to him about, everything we would say, he'd go away and think about, and he'd come back, and he'd and he, and he present books or bits of paper or stuff off the internet, basically saying, that's not right. And why you don't need to believe in God, why you don't need to give your heart to God. And, and basically, he, he would do this, and it went on for months and months and months. And it was so sad because his response to truth or being told about God 
was to go and find a reason not to believe what he'd been told. And, and so much of that mindset exists in this city. And that's what God is trying to break. He's trying to break up that hard ground. He's trying to prepare that ground ready to receive the gospel. And it's our job to do that. And you see, I, I said to him, I said, look, the truth is, God loves you. But I also say, the truth is this. Everything I say, you'll be able to find an objection to. Because there's an enemy who's been working on that for thousands of years. And our job as believers is this. Firstly, to know that God's working on it and he's going to do something even better than we've asked for and not to lose faith. But secondly is this, and this applies to all our walk with God. We work on reasons to believe, not reasons not to believe. You see, Phil, our friend, worked on reasons not to believe, and it got him nowhere. We work on reasons to believe so that we can see what we believe. <laughs> and so when we focus our lives on reasons to believe, it strengthens us. It's a choice we make. When we focus our lives on reasons not to believe, it weakens us. And we might justify all that by saying, well, you know, it hasn't turned out I expected. Well, God's working on it. You find reasons to believe even when it looks impossible. You see, Zacharias faltered, and, and it all turns out okay, but he falters because he wasn't looking for reasons to believe. He was looking for reasons not to believe. And so the answer for the impossible thing he'd been asking for is there and then and coming, and he's finding reasons not to believe. And our job is that the answer we've been praying for, the things we've been praying for for these last nine, ten years as faith life, the things you've been praying for in your life, year on year in, year in, year out, it's God's working on it, it's coming, and it's going to be better than you expected. But we don't falter. We don't go into unbelief, and we don't find reasons not to believe. Because if we find reasons not to believe, we dig up the seed we planted. And it doesn't bear fruit. So we find reasons to believe. Because we have a God who does the impossible, who can make barren wounds give birth way beyond the years. But not only that, bring about something and someone who had such a great anointing on him that he changed history and prepared the way for Christ. And right now, our job is to prepare the way for Christ. As a body, we are preparing the way for Christ. As individuals, our role is to prepare hearts, minds, thinking, um, lives to receive the truth of Christ so that people will turn to him and this city will turn to him. Amen? Let's stand.